to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15, that's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Welcome back listeners, this is Daria Brown and this week is part two of a podcast with speech and language pathologist Jolene Fernald. Let's go back and listen to the introduction again and get into parent questions from members of Affect Autism, which she will be answering this week on the topic of alternative and augmentative communication devices. This week I have speech and language pathologist Jolene Fernald. She has her PhD as well, and she is an expert DIR training leader, and she is in Newport Ritchie, Florida, just outside of Tampa. She's the Selective Mutism Clinic Coordinator at Jolene Fernald Pediatric Therapy Services. She's also an adjunct professor at Granite State College and the co-founder of Reconnections Education Center. She specializes in selective mutism and alternative and augmented communication? Correct. <laughs> Welcome, Jolene. It's nice to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. On the topic of parents, I have a few parent questions for you if you're game for that. Sure, um, I'd love to. Okay, a parent asked about the AAC device spelling to communicate versus a picture-based device like Proloquo. So they are two very different systems. Um, spelling to communicate is a an offshoot from the um, rapid prompt method, RPM, which is an offshoot from facilitated communication, FC. So FC was kind of the original, and then these other, um, these other models, if you will, are, are kind of from there. So the idea is that you have a, 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 a partner, a communication partner that has a physical hand on your hand, um, helping to guide you with spelling out whatever you're trying to communicate. So that's the simple way of saying it. I'm not an expert in the, the spelling boards, um, but that is, is the process. And the, the background behind it is that the idea is that it's slowing you down for your motor planning with the brain body disconnect so that by being able to push through a board with the letters, it really slows everything down so that you can express yourself more definitively. That's what the spelling boards are. Proloquo is a picture-based system. It's a speech generating device. It does not require hand over hand. So it's a little bit more autonomous in the sense that yes, you may utilize some support physically. Um, I recommend hand under hand if you are going to do that so that your communicator has the ability to remove their hand um, on their own and can feel very safe and confident doing that as opposed to a hand over hand approach. Um, and with any kind of speech generating device, so whether you're using Proloquo to go, which is a common one, um, an accent device through Prankyromic, which would look at the um, LAMP model, which is language acquisition through motor planning, um, whether it's a touch chat, there's a lot of different types of speech generating devices. Um, I think personally, my preference is more 
to go the speech generating device because it does support more autonomy. It doesn't um, require that you have a communication partner that is trained in the device. For example, let's say you want to go to a restaurant and order your lunch. You would need with the boards to have somebody who's trained in reading your board so that you are spelling out I, W-O-U-L-D, would, L-I-K-E, like a hamburger. I can't even spell all of that together. But so you would require somebody right there with you to sort of translate to the um, clerk at the restaurant. Whereas with a speech generating device, when you get to the point of being more um, confident in there, you could say, I would like a hamburger. And that person's hearing that I would like a hamburger. So it's a little bit more universal in that sense, as well as my, my bias towards a speech generating device. It allows for much more novel communication, which is more developmental in nature, the way that we typically learn communication and language. Um, again, the autonomy piece of it. And then it is far more um, universal where you can take it anywhere, you know, and, and you don't have to have the same partner with you um, across the board. Um, in my experience, spelling to communicate is, is a slightly more behaviorally based model. Um, the, the systematic way of teaching it is a little bit more behavioral um, in nature. Um, as far as the way that that hierarchy, you are, are placed into a supported seat, you are um, required to sit, you know, and, and move through the boards in a, a systematic way. And I, again, I want to clarify, I'm not an expert in the spelling boards. Um, I am an expert in the speech generating devices. And I'm definitely as a speech language pathologist, much more biased toward the speech generating devices for those reasons that I mentioned. Now, I know the one takeaway I had from your conference presentation from the November Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning conference for DIR floor time was that sometimes parents will come in and they say, my child is non-speaking. I would like them to learn how to use an AAC device. And here's the AAC device. And all of a sudden they're going to start talking. And you might've been exaggerating a little bit, but your point was, that just like a human being doesn't learn to speak in a month or two or six, it takes quite a while. Learning how to use an AAC device is a similar process that takes a long time. And sometimes you'll see parents want to give up and say, oh, it's not working. And if you could describe that process a little bit, that'd be great. I use the, um, the analogy of exactly how a baby does become a, a speaker, typically, right? A neurotypical baby. They are um, bombarded with language input for the first six to nine months of their life. So out of the womb, and then they're, you know, goo goo gaga and, you know, mama, baba, dada, all of those kind of pieces are, are thrown at them constantly. But it's not really until close to about 12 months before you start to hear that that expression, right? The, the child starts to verbally communicate mama, dada, um, you know, yaya or whatever their words might be, those, those first words, boff or bottle or something. But it takes about 12 months for them to produce that. And so for our expectation, when we start with an um, AAC system, 
we do expect because the child is comprehending so much, we just expect that they're going to automatically have the motor plan and have the capability of just going to food and then to meats and then to hamburger because that's what they want for dinner. When in fact, it may take you three to five months or more before the child is doing that completely spontaneously and on their own. So I absolutely encourage parents to stick it out, hang in there because the process takes a long time for us to combine words in um, our neurotypical population. It can be up to um, a whole other 12 months, right? So it's not really until about the age of 24 months old that our kids start to combine two words at a time and then three and four words and so on is around three to four years. So it's super important for us to get those devices in the hands of kids early on. Um, it's very common for a lot of places to wait until the age of eight or nine years old. And by then, you know, kids are extremely frustrated. I think that a lot of times that's when we start to see um, those negative behaviors, that frustration and so on come out because kids can't ac access their communication. They can't share what their wants and needs are and their hopes and wishes and, and dreams and ideas. And that is frustrating. So um, definitely start earlier. The other piece that a lot of people mentioned to me too is um, prerequisites for AAC. And there are no prerequisites for accessing a communication system. So for that fa family that asked you about um, spelling to communicate versus a picture symbol type of a system like Prologue Quo, a lot of people will say, well, um, you need to have, um, you know, symbolism or, or object awareness and, and, you know, cause effect in certain things in order to use a speech generating device. When in fact, think about, again, our typical, um, typically developing infants, they don't have those skills until they have those skills, until they've been exposed to all of that, that language and so on. So um, there are no prerequisites. And yeah, I definitely am biased on, on those speech generating devices for the amazing, you know, novel communication that they can, they can generate and share. Um, and you literally have access to, you know, hundreds of thousands, you know, and, and so many more. Um, and there's spelling, there's an alphabet on there, you know, on those devices too, that you can, um, if there's a word that you can't find or something that, that that person is trying to communicate, they can go ahead and try to spell it out so that, you know, you can try to guess and figure out what it is. Now, I know a lot of parents panic when their children aren't speaking. And of course, we never know if that child will become verbal or not at the time, or maybe there are, maybe you know that there are predictors or something, but some, I know a lot of parents that said, my child didn't speak at all till they're age six or something like that. So <laughs> in that case, would you still intervene early and verbal would still come even though they're using AAC? How does that work together? That's such a great question. Yes. So the literature and the research that we have actually shows that starting a device early um, actually can support more verbal language um, communication output. So in my opinion, and as a speech pathologist, my goal is communication first. And if talking comes, that's great, but I want the child to have the ability to communicate. 
And so I wouldn't wait. I definitely don't have a crystal ball in those kids that I think, okay, based on these prognostic indicators are probably not going to verbalize, um, use speech output down the line. Those are the ones that always show me up anyway. So I've, I've given up over the years at trying to make those, those predictions. And instead I just support whatever method and whatever, um, you know, model seems to work best for that child. For some kids, it may be, that speech generating device for other kids, it may be spelling out, you know, on their, their, uh, a text to speech option on their iPad or their cell phone. Um, I have an amazing 16 year old gal that I'm working with right now. She came to me specifically for situational mutism, um, because she wanted to be a much more confident communicator, but she's amazing using her phone. Her text to speech app is fantastic. And so I asked her, I said, you know, what's, what's wrong with that? Why, why aren't you enjoying using this? And she said, well, it's definitely not as efficient as, you know, my verbal speeches. Um, and I said, but are you able to access it all the time? And she said, yeah. And I said, so I don't know that it's as much you know, an issue with, with your not being comfortable, but that maybe you feel like other people are not as patient as they should be in that communication situation. And, um, and that reframe for her really gave her so much more confidence. We're still working on her being able to kind of calm and regulate a little bit more. So maybe she can use her, her verbal communication, um, at other times, but really right now, she's a fabulous communicator. I wish all of my, my kids could be, um, you know, as easily able to access their, their technology that way. Um, and so, yeah, I would just, I would encourage families to start as young as possible because it will alleviate so much of that frustration and so much of that stress. And then you'll really know what your child needs, what their preferences are and give them the ability to advocate earlier on so that when it's time perhaps for that speech output to come that that will just kind of naturally flow into that next step and what is the most surprising outcome you've seen in any of your 2000 kids that you have worked with did anyone you know maybe they didn't start speaking until they were a teenager or something like that I mean, with selective mutism, the, the most of them are actually verbal pretty quickly. The, the typical treatment time for my kids with selective mutism is between nine and 12 months. So, um, and that usually within two or three sessions, they're verbal with me. Um, and then it's just a matter of helping them figure out that, that regulation and support that, you know, all of their individual differences that help support that regulation so that they can be confident communicators outside of, of my space. Um, so for SM, I don't know that I've had any, um, you know, they're all amazing when having parents call me or, or text me that, you know, their child got in trouble for talking too loudly in their classroom. We celebrate those moments where <laughs> most parents would be mortified, you know, that their kids are, are getting in trouble, but we're cheering and saying, you know, hooray, he got called to the principal's office for being too noisy in the library or whatever. So those are pretty amazing, um, surprising moments. My probably my biggest, um, story for, uh, you know, me not knowing what I was doing or whatever you want to say, but, um, one of my families that I worked with, uh, the child was three when I had him and I had him from the age of three to about seven. And then I shifted school districts. I was working in the schools at the time. Um, 
And he was one of those kids that I thought was never going to be a verbal communicator. Um, I really questioned cognition. I was way younger then. I didn't presume competence the way that I do now. I have to admit, um, I've learned a lot over the years. So um, I really looked at, you know, this kiddo is just, he's going to struggle was really what I saw at the time. Again, I've learned a lot since then. Um, and his mom just reached out to me last year and he's working for NASA now as an engineer um, and is a genius and uh, clearly very verbal and able to get his needs met. And um, yeah, so, you know, I'm Amazing. not going to say that I, yeah, it's really exciting to see that probably is my biggest um, and my biggest um sadness for myself as a professional that I shortchanged somebody who had so much potential. And that's what I love about the DIR perspective. Instead of looking at what kids can't do, reframing that to what are their capabilities and their capacities so that I can support them um, to achieve whatever they want to achieve. And the key being you will support them as opposed to right, I'm going me. to be their therapist and I'm the one that knows and, and you're the, the client, it's you're supporting them. And that's really absolutely. what DIR is about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Instead of my saying, um, I'm going to get you to talk, which is where I was before, that was my headspace early on in my career. Um, now it's, what do I need to do? And again, I take the onus on myself. What do I need to do to support you to achieve what you are capable of? Um, and that, that flip, it seems really subtle, but it's, it's, it's everything. It really has completely changed the way that I practice. And it goes back to the foundation of our school. It goes back to, um, you know, the floor time intervention that I provide as a, as a speech pathologist, um, it truly is, it, it, it's the cornerstone of everything that I do. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, another parent asks, we're just starting out with ProLoquo to go, and I'm wondering about tips for respectfully introducing the program in a way that doesn't feel compliance-based. Uh, my daughter is three and a half and non-speaking. Right now, we're just exploring a few buttons together, and I press them to casually narrate a few things as we go about our day. I'm wondering the best way to start branching out from here. Also a great question. Um, I think exactly what you're doing is where I would start. Um, ProLoquo is set up a little bit differently from some other programs. And there are a couple things that I make sure that I tell families when they're using ProLoquo is to try to set it up um, not category based, but accessible to. Uh, so, you know, yellow is always going to be in yellow spot, and um, food is always going to be in food spot and go is always going to be in the same spot so that those options are always there. So ProLoquo is set up so that a lot of times we end up with different pages for, you know, you might have a, a movie page or a book page or a, you know, radio music page or something like that. Try not to do it that way. Um, and then exactly that aided language stimulation is what this family is doing by modeling throughout the day and showing. Um, don't withhold food until she says, you know, I want snack or whatever. Don't do that. Um, and it sounds like this family's already kind of aware of that. Um, but continuing to model it 
whenever she clearly brings you to the refrigerator, oh, you wanted snack. And then you just model it on the, on the device or um, it's time for bed and put, you know, sleep in there. Um, the other key point that I often recommend is to highlight more verbs than nouns. Um, often it's easier for us to think about language in the terms of, um, of nouns, right? Things. So, you know, goldfish or crackers or a snack that a child loves or a video or something like that. But really the power words are those verbs. So try to um, show her those, those power words like go, stop, um, want, um, and then you can figure out what she wants from there. But those are really great, um, great words to, to start with um, moving forward. And what, if you had a blank slate, what is your go-to device that you will suggest to parents if it's your choice? And it's a hard question because some families are already invested in another choice and you don't want them to regret it and feel like they did the wrong thing. And so I don't even know if that's a fair question, but I imagine you get that question from families. I do. There's a process that I recommend and, you know, de specific devices and systems are, they should be very individualized and they should be based on the strengths of the child. Um, that said, I found that for me, probably the most um, uh, universal device or, or, you know, flexible device or whatever would be that pranky um accent device from, from which uses the language acquisition through motor planning, the lamp um, model, um, because those, those symbols are always in the same location. So it uses the same theory that we use when we type, for example, when you learned where the home keys are on your keyboard, um, those keys don't move. And then, you know, now I can have a whole conversation and type something at the same time um, without having to look down at the keyboard. Um, and so the idea is that our, our children and our communicators are learning that same motor plan on their communication device and those symbols don't move and they don't shift. Um, and you can generate, you know, all kinds of types of sentences and, and um, you know, language expressions and so on. So while it should be very individualized and I have definitely recommended a lot of different options, um, I would say that my go-to is typically LAMP, um, and they have an app now too, uh, on the iPad, which I think gives some more flexibility for families who may not have $8,000 in insurance funding or whatever to purchase the regular, you know, standalone dedicated device. You can spend $500, you know, at, for an app on your iPad and still have the same level of access. And then you can modify your iPad with a key guard and some different options if you needed to um, help support your child that way. So I like that kind of flexibility, having it as an app, as well as having access on, you know, a dedicated standard um, device uh, on your, on your own too. I know I'm going to get this question do you offer virtual services for people that aren't in your area who maybe want a consultation because of your expertise who then may work with their local SLP going forward? 
I do. Um, if it's just a consult with families, I'm happy to go ahead and do that. I can do that anywhere. I am licensed in New Hampshire and Florida. Um, so if it's particularly, you know, where I need a, a child in that sense, um, for my licensure, I would, I would have to look and see whether or not I can get licensed in a different state. Um, but I'm happy to, to consult and just give some, some feedback for families. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, I do have a question about scripting, which is not totally related to everything we've been talking about, but it is a, a speech and language question. So um, a parent says, I knowing that scripting is their child's current way of communicating, uh, the parent tries to interact as often as possible. Sometimes the child is able to repeat a script with precise enunciation, while other times she'll say a first few words clearly and then mumble repetitively the words in between and properly pronounce the last few words in a script. It makes it difficult to engage at those times. Do you have suggestions for engaging when the child's in that mode? Um, yeah, so I love scripting because I think it's kind of a, an initial introduction into communication for many of our kids. They don't have the motor planning um, of their own accord at that point. So the idea is that um, with motor planning, it's a four-step process. You have an idea, you make a plan, you execute the plan, and then you modify, adapt as needed. Those are the four main steps for motor planning. So with uh, scripting, the, the first part is that they have an idea and it's connected to an association, something that they may have seen, something that they may have heard. So the example, um, maybe they're, you're talking about shoes and they link to Cinderella and her shoe. So they script something about, you know, this magical shoe fitting or something. So to us, sometimes that seems really random and we can't figure out where that connection is but within the motor planning they get that first part that idea but the second part of make a plan and then um uh execute the plan you know do the plan out and then adapt they they struggle with those those middle pieces so again the association is actually pretty cool if you can start to figure out where it's coming from for your from your child um, but the challenge is, of course, a lot of times it seems random. So I would encourage the family to continue to try to make those associations, try to link, continue to support that motor planning and, um, you know, somewhere around FEDC three and four, where we're getting more into that purposeful communication and um, social problem solving at four. And then hopefully some of that will start to connect. Now, the reason that I think the, the jargon happens in the middle is also related to motor planning. And it can be a couple of different things. Sometimes it can be actual motor planning where the sounds, um, you know, there's kind of a kink from being able to get the, the brain to get the mouth to do what it's supposed to do for those individual sounds. Whereas other times it's sort of like a fluid process. So there's, there's that side of things. And then the other piece has to do with uh, more of a working memory uh, level. So the child may retain more of whatever happened at the beginning, kind of what happened at the end, but the in-between, they don't have it completely laid down in their memory. 
So it's more of a jargony, you know, babble, um, kind of middle, middle piece. So that's what I would say would be the, um, would be the, the challenge, um, with the scripting is just not knowing where those, those ideas and those associations are coming from. Um, but to continue to try to make that link as best you can, because also the child may be using it as a placeholder to process what you're saying, the way that echolalia would be um, used, or they're using it to initiate that interaction completely. And um, it's really just a matter of kind of teasing out which way they're, which way they're using it. Right. And I've given the example on the podcast a few times of scripts that my son uses when situations come up that remind him of things we've been through and things that we said in that occasion, he then says it um, in an appropriate way. And it's the type of thing that only I would know because I was the one with him when him and I made that association. But if he said that at school, like the person at school would have no clue what he's talking about. So I think it's right. a natural thing that our kids do. And it's, Absolutely. it's just an early developmental step and it can be related to an emotional experience, right? Some mm -hmm. emotion that they're feeling. And so it may not be as literal as, well, you're talking about shoes and that's where Cinderella comes in. Um, you know, your child may love princesses and it seems like all of a sudden that's, that's everything is princesses. When in fact, maybe it's a feeling that they got when they were watching the movie with you, or maybe it's a, a frustration, you know, it's the, the angry part where Cinderella is being made to clean, you know, the, the floors and you've just told your kiddo that they have to go clean their room. I mean, it could be, it could be any association. And unfortunately it's, it's more of a puzzle for us. We just don't know where that's coming from, but I would encourage families to know that it's coming from somewhere that for your child, it's purposeful and to treat it as purposeful um, as possible, you know, when, when that experience is happening um, to kind of go with the flow, follow that lead um, and try to, to support them moving through that process. If it's a negative, what we would consider as a negative, big feeling, big emotion, um, let your child go through that whole big feeling, let them go through that whole big emotion so that hopefully they can figure out and resolve on the other side so that the next time they experience that, then it feels a little safer and it feels a little bit more manageable for them. And I'll refer listeners to the podcast I did on scripting with Jahan Shahata Abubakar because she's a speech language pathologist closer to me. And we, we talked about exactly what Jolene's mentioning and there'll be some more examples in that podcast. Um, the, the other question is, my daughter's starting to talk at home, limited with much scripting, but will sing to herself or mumble with some clear words while she plays. And she'll even script with her sibling and anyone who came over. But when they would go out to a family member's house or a playground, she would go silent, but she would still seek out other kids and just stand by them silently. So is the parents wondering, is this selective mutism? And if so, she doesn't seem to display other signs of anxiety and eagerly seeks people out. But then she won't script or say anything until she's in a demanding request mode. If she needs something like a bathroom or wants ice cream and she'll use some words, some lead and follow, what should the parent do? <laughs> wow, there's so much there. So I think first, I think anxiety, let's not um, assume what anxiety ever looks like because we can't really tell 
um, often from the outside. You know, for a long time, I thought that anxiety was, you know, a kiddo biting their fingernails and rocking in the corner, you know, in the fetal position. That's what I pictured anxiety look, looking like. Um, your voice tremoring or, or, you know, dry mouth or whatever, but it really can be any of those as well as, um, for me, anxiety is actually being more of a perfectionist. So anxiety for me drives me forward to be a type a perfectionist. Um, whereas for some people, anxiety causes them to withdraw a little bit more and, and back up a little bit more. So for, for families, I don't, don't presume what anxiety looks like in your child um, would be the first step. But secondly, I'm super encouraged that she's approaching kids on the playground or, or going out there. I think that's awesome. And a lot of our kids will try, um, try communicating in the home environment where it's safe and they have a little bit more control with their surroundings. And then when they get more confident using it in their home environment, that's when you'll start to see it transition and, and generalize out into more public situations. I'd be willing to guess that this child knows that mom or their sibling is going to hang out and be more patient and, and you know, tolerate maybe more directive play or or engaging with things that she may be interested in in the home where there's so much unpredictability and there's so much unknown when you go out into a playground and you don't know those kids and you may be drawn to them, but you just don't quite know how to interact or open that, that circle up yet. Um, so I think it's awesome. I think it's really encouraging that she's approaching and, um, I would continue with that same scripting conversation that we just had as far as supporting scripting in that way, um, as well as the motor plan and, um, and look at those other individual differences that may, it may be the physical challenges of the playground that the cognitive load is just too much and she can't navigate the the visual spatial part or the motor planning to get up onto a slide at the same time as trying to access speech and language skills. It may be that she can't um, figure out that initial idea of what do I say? You know, how do I, how do I open and engage at the same time that I'm doing this, this physical activity? Um, so I think there's probably a number of things at play in this particular situation for this particular child. Um, but I'm encouraged that she's at least uh, approaching the kids. I don't know that it specifically meets the diagnostic criteria of SM, um, because it sounds like she's not maybe 100% verbal, even at home consistently. So I would, um, I would make sure that, that that's more what we're looking at. I think it's probably the cognitive load and maybe some of that stress within that situation that's probably impacting her ability to be um, as outgoing um, outside of the home. And as you mentioned, uh, there can't be a double diagnosis. So this child has an, an autism diagnosis, so would not get the SM diagnosis. Right. And I should say too that while our DSM specifically says you're not supposed to have them as co-occurring diagnoses, there is no doubt in my mind that my daughter met the criteria for selective mutism at age three, and she also met the criteria for um, for autism through those ages. You know, the, those years too. Um, but we just chose not to go the the autism side of things um, as a family. So. Um, there has been some research that shows a shared gene 
between kids. This was back when we still called it Asperger's, but so they looked at Asperger's and um, kids with selective mutism, and there's actually a shared genetic component between the two. Um, and again, I prefer to just think of it from a profile perspective that yes, there were sensory differences, there were motor differences, there were communication differences, there were repetitive um, behaviors or specific interests and, and so on. I'd rather describe a child from those perspectives as opposed to um, any one particular label. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This is Jolene's website, Jolene Fernald Pediatric Therapy Services. And I'll put links to all of this in the blog post at affectautism.com. Here's Reconnections Education Center, her new school. That is a DIR school supporting children who want a more developmental approach. You do not need an autism diagnosis. It is for children that need that extra support. So thank you so much, Jolene. And you have some great questions from your families. They'll be very grateful for the answers. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> My pleasure. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. Thank you to the members of Affect Autism for submitting their questions for this week's podcast. If you would like to submit questions for upcoming podcasts, consider becoming a member of Affect Autism at the patreon.com slash affectautism page. For as little as $5 US a month, you can be a member supporting the work that I do to bring DIR floor time implementation to you and your family and make it a little bit easier and add a lot of support. You have access to floor time videos, my weekly insights, and more. Check it out at patreon.com slash affectautism.